Morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the rest of you. It is Q, your fearless host, and I'm still coming to you live from Mexico. And I am joined by Bitcoin legend himself, BTC Sessions. Ben, how you doing, man? Not too bad, man. You know, keeping on, still, still hanging in there, still making videos. So uh, good, and uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Of course, man, and a, a huge thank you. I know. Uh, life has been a little tumultuous for the last couple of months for yourself. And we are in the Bitcoin community, really appreciative of, I think the legwork that you and the team are doing up North, uh, despite the way some of the things have been shaking out, but maybe do you mind just sharing a little bit about sort of what's happened in the last couple of days and what you guys are, are looking to do next, if at all, anything, whether it's safety protection, what, what's been going on for you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously online things have been a bit quieter, you know, and I've been in contact with Nick, you know, yesterday and the past few days here. So many people uh, would have seen that. I can't recall the exact date, but, uh, you know, Nick went out and delivered a whole bunch of Bitcoin to uh, in individuals in Ottawa and um, basically handed it direct to them. And so, so I, if I'm not mistaken, between 14 and 15 Bitcoin were given out to individuals and then the, the rest was remaining. I did get a message and uh, I saw um, online, obviously, Nick tweeted out, police came to wherever he was the other day and basically took everything he had on him. I don't know what, like he, they took his phone, his computer, whatever, whatever the hell he had on his person, um, basically confiscated it all. So, uh, you know, I have not been privy to the, the key or multi-sig arrangement for some time now, um, purposely. And so when he says that he no longer has keys, I don't know specifically what is meant by that in terms of, you know, are, are all the keys compromised or, or what's going on? I do not know. But in, in the end, we know that two thirds, roughly well, around 14 or 15 Bitcoin um, were given directly to individuals. And so those, those are in the hand, hands of them at this point. But as, as per the rest, uh, like Nick is okay. You know, he's not, um, but basically, you know, they, they took things that, uh, were in his custody or whatever was on his person at the time. And, um, we're just kind of waiting to see what shakes out there. So, so that's kind of the state of, of where things are right now in terms of, of plans and everything like, again, um, I don't know what the, the state of, of that remaining Bitcoin is in terms of um, how that pertains to Nick. And even still, um, my understanding was that Mariva injunction basically um, made it so that anybody moving Bitcoin af you know, after that was filed or after they became privy to it would be um, there, there could be severe penalties after that point. So right now, it's unfortunately just a lot of hurry up and wait. And so I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know, waiting on, you know, Nick messaged me yesterday when uh, shortly after everything happened, just to kind of give me a heads up and let me know that he was okay. And uh, so now it's just, I, I guess, just kind of waiting on on messages, waiting to see how things play out. But that's where it's at, man. It's, uh, it is what it is. No, I mean, it, a very tough and interesting time. I mean, we're seeing uh, Bitcoin's use cases get tested in real time up north in Canada. We're seeing it tested in Eastern Europe as well, uh, between both Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, what, are, what are some things between all of these sort of uprisings is the wrong word, but all these events, global mm -hmm. events that are essentially occurring that are showcasing and putting Bitcoin on a global spotlight? You see a lot of positive press and support of, hey, look, this is what Bitcoin can offer. These are the freedoms it provides. Mm -hmm. And then you also see some other media talking about, hey, this is now Putin's out. This is, hey, this is the way the truckers are getting around, whatever it is. There's a lot of chatter on both sides of this. I guess 
how are you trying to declutter that and help people really understand the pros and the cons mm -hmm. of what we're seeing transpire? So I, I think one of the big takeaways I hope eventually proliferates through all of society is that Bitcoin is simply a tool and it is a level, level playing field for everyone across the board. You know, people you do like, people you don't like, causes you agree with, causes you don't agree with, all of them can utilize Bitcoin because it is apolitical. It is just a free and open source software available to all. In terms of kind of what we've seen, uh, again, we, we've seen it utilized in a lot of different ways. We've seen it utilized in, in Canada when the legacy finance was able to be captured and, and no longer useful to a subset of the population. We've seen it for people in Ukraine. I saw a story about somebody how, who was able, at, while escaping, uh, to utilize Bitcoin to get their assets uh, as they escaped the country. You know, we've seen whether people agree with it or not, donations flood into to Ukraine specifically. Um, I believe via the, the official government Twitter account was tweeting out, you know, Bitcoin addresses and, st and so on and so forth. But again, it, just prior to that, we saw the Patreon freeze, freeze some money. So again, legacy finance failing them. And then we also see people uh, throwing around the idea that, well, could this be used to evade sanctions? I'm in its current state. I'm a little bit skeptical about that assertion, given the the size of the asset for a, you know a country such as Russia to to be able to move meaningful amounts of money through it. Uh, still relatively small, but but I do see it as a tool also for for Russians through no fault of their own, who just because of what's going on politically have effectively been penalized, right? They've, their, their currency is taking a major hit. They may not be able to utilize their bank accounts. There's long lineups at, at ATMs. There's, they're basically financially getting screwed because of these geopolitical tensions just for existing in a country where, where this is going on. So we are seeing it as a tool for people to insulate themselves from a variety of things. The other takeaways that I've, I've kind of noticed is, is that, you know, in, in terms of how, what Bitcoin can do, we're, we're learning a lot about that right now. And we're learning a lot about what tools should be used and how and when. Um, you know, kind of tagging on to the saying, you know, there's, there's years where nothing happens and then there's weeks where decades happen, you know, some, something along those lines. I think this is one of those moments for Bitcoin where um, there's years where, you know, people and things seem a little static. And then there's, there's periods of a month or a few weeks where, so much happens and so much is learned. And I think this is one of those times where this past month um, and however long into the future here, so much is going to be learned about Bitcoin's capabilities and what needs to be built next. And while it's scary at the time, I, I think for the future, this is, is going to further make Bitcoin uh, more anti-fragile than it already is. Yeah. And, and to piggyback on that, Ben, I think, you know, Bitcoin is, it didn't fail. Like some people said, oh, the, the trucker protest failed or, you know, it's failing in other spots. But just because the, the network doesn't fail doesn't mean that the people that use it can't be um, censored or confiscated or, uh, and, and I won't say censored in terms of monetary, but, you know, doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they can't hack your bank accounts or, or, um, turn off your bank accounts, freeze your bank accounts, freeze your social media. So while the network of Bitcoin and the protocol still remains and works well, exactly what happened to Nick. I mean, they showed up at his house, which is uh, kind of scary. Luckily, he wasn't harmed, uh, at least physically, uh, maybe emotionally and mentally. I, I can imagine that's pretty straining what he's going through. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like at the end of the day, every individual is a person living in a jurisdiction with a government that may or may not favor what they're doing. And so, um, 
you know, the, the tools that are available with Bitcoin, they're, they're there, but uh, we're still, we're, we're still at that point in the world where, you know, y- you do live to a degree for di- varying degrees for different people, but you're still very much plugged into the legacy financial system. So that's uh, a, a very real worry for a lot of people. We saw that play out over the past few weeks. As Bitcoin grows, as more people become privy to how it works, I think we do start to see more kind of circular economies be established, at least like in, in a back end as a, as a just in case. Um, and we already see this now. Uh, I think we also start to see new tools be built, but also people realize that they should be using the available tools now as as often as possible and so one of one of the things that have come to light in the past few weeks especially for me is that you know it should always be bitcoin best practices regardless of of how minimal something seems initially uh, it things can grow very very quickly things can change on a dime um i i didn't think that things would move so quickly here in canada you know, it started with uh, just to give an, uh, some con- context, uh, the tally coin page, the initial goal of the fundraiser was 10 million sats. <laughs> so that's like four grand. Um, and so the initial thought was, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll throw this up. We'll get maybe a few, you know, a few donations and you know, a few gas cards can be bought, bought and given out. And, you know, there'll be a little protest and, and so on and so forth. And then, Within a week of of the tally coin starting up, GoFundMe was frozen. They started to see issues with Give Send Go. The you know a week and a half, two weeks in, Emergencies Act was called. All of these different things started happening way faster than anybody expected. And on top of that, twenty something Bitcoin get donated, which was mind boggling, but also outlined that. Again, best practices uh, should be observed, regardless of how initially small something may seem. Um, and I think that a, a focus on on privacy and privacy tools is something that's that's needed out of more people, myself included, moving forward. Because the initial thought was, well, you know, you gotta you gotta be super transparent. Make sure that uh, the initial thought was. Bitcoiners don't trust verify. So we're going to want to see, okay, this went here, this went here and so, so and so on and so forth. But in, in that thinking, there wasn't, there, there wasn't as much thought. And I blame myself for this uh, put on well, what are the implications of if somebody didn't use privacy practices before donating or, you know, moving forward, this gives like a, a very real single touch point moving forward to see where things go next. And so, you know, looking at it now, it's like, well, it would have been great uh, if if I knew how to use it at the time, how to do uh, to do like a BTC pay server uh, with a new address generated for every single donation that went directly into like a Sparrow wallet or Wasabi wallet coin join that was then immediately distributed out you know, through uh, a means which preserved the privacy of the individuals that got it. But unfortunately, with crazy things happening um, at an exponential pace, that's not how it played out. But there's definitely, a, 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 you know, a bit more of a, a roadmap and some learning lessons there um, now. So, yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin's definitely on the global stage. And I think Bitcoiners, we always talk about how big this network is, but I think when this all occurred, we didn't realize how big it was going to be. I mean, you guys just trying to get 10 million sats, four grand, you'd figure some people in Canada, maybe some Americans would donate. But I remember even looking at the TallyCoin page and not looking to dox anyone, but people are saying, I'm from England, I'm from Ukraine, I'm from, you know, all over the world that started donating. And it's truly a global network, yeah. which, um, you know, I people always think in linear scale and it's hard to think in logarithmic scale or exponential scale. So I think when donations 
donations are coming from all across the world, anywhere, you know, across this network, whether it's lightning or on chain, uh, you know, I can definitely see how things got out of hand in terms of the total amount of donations. And like yeah. I said, it's kind of, it was almost putting you guys and, and Nick and, and even the truckers at risk when the, when the sums of money get that large, that obviously draws attention uh, for local governments or even, you know, national governments or globally. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I guess it's a bit of a cautionary tale for all Bitcoiners out there that are doing anything that down the line could be interpreted as, as uh, unfavorable to your government, which in essence could even be just having Bitcoin, that those best practices need to be in place. And, and you're absolutely right in terms of the, how wild it was to see people from everywhere, particularly with, with lightning donations, because you would see something like somebody just on the opposite side of the globe would be like, you know, I, I support this. I'm going to send a, a, a dollar from Ethiopia like <laughs> instantly for free um, to land it in this thing. And, you know, you saw dozens of messages from people around the world just sending a dollar here or there. Um, and that was that was pretty amazing to see. You know, I I. I Bitcoiners, a lot of them tend to be what's what's a good term? I guess freedom oriented people, or uh, you know they believe in the idea. A, a lot of them believe in the idea of you know body autonomy, or or um, you know just just choice in how you live your life, and uh, and so it resonated with a fair number of people, and a lot of people wanted to partake in that and or show support in any way they want they could, and so you know lightning was one thing that enabled them to do that in any tiny way that they saw fit. I saw 100 sat donations come in. Like that's that's crazy from around the world. I know you touched on a little bit of just sort of what we could have done better in this instance, especially with Tallycoin and these donations. And we're watching now a new push over in Eastern Europe as well. Donations coming into Ukrainians. We're seeing an influx of transactions in both Ukraine and Russia as well. What are some things that you are that you had learned from this experience with Tallycoin and in Canada that you are hoping those in Ukraine and Russia either are aware of or you want to make them aware of so in terms of in terms of tools you know things like coinjoin are are incredibly useful i also just did a, a video on a, a tutorial on paynims um, and so what paynims are are effectively it's a publicly shareable id that anybody can connect to and establish a connection between two users right now of Samurai Wallet, but other wallets are implementing it. And um, effectively, it allows you to generate receive addresses between two parties without having to publicly post them anywhere, um, while being allowed to publicly post your, your ID without doxing the individual addresses. Now, obviously, transactions still show up on the blockchain, but it doesn't give that easy point of, oh, this person posted this address. We know that's their address. Um, so it, it, it definitely helps there. So that's actually something that's on Tallycoin. Tallycoin was an early supporter of, of Paynims. Unfortunately, I was really unfamiliar with how to, how to utilize Paynims. Also, most wallets have not implemented, um, I think it's BIP47 yet uh, to allow for that. But I do see rumblings of, you know, um, Sparrow Wallet, Blue Wallet, uh, maybe some others that are, are going down that path. And maybe this is the push that we needed to get some stuff like that. And maybe some others. I, you know, I also saw Umbral update today with uh, Join Market, which is pretty cool. You know, you got, you got Sparrow and Samurai with Whirlpool. You got Wasabi, uh, CoinJoin 2.0 at some point dropping. So there are tools out there. There are things that I think people should um, be privy to, but also just in terms of just in general, protecting your wealth. Like if you're, if you're trying to escape with some of your assets intact, you got to be careful in, in how those, you know, how, if you you're holding Bitcoin, how you have it, right? Because if it's just, on a, a hot wallet on your phone, it's pretty obvious that somebody can just take that, right? And then where's your keys? But, you know, in a pinch like that, 
brush up on your memorization skills. Get those 12 words in your head. There's actually, you know what? I know this is a bit of a tangent, but there's a really good book called Moonwalking with Einstein. And it's about this guy and he, he, uh, he goes to write a story. I believe he was a journalist or an author. He, he goes to write a story on the memory championship um, where all these people like have incredible memories and can like memorize decks of cards in like 10 seconds and things like that. And he goes and he goes and he starts learning from one of the masters that was in the world championship. And just a few years later, he ends up placing, I think, in the top 10 just from learning the skills of memorization. And so uh, there's a really cool concept that they cover called uh, creating a, a memory palace. And it's basically a uh, you you pick a spot that you know, like your house or a familiar place, and you walk in your mind through that place. And then you, you have odd things that would be probably your seed phrase, those individual words that would pertain to that at specific parts as you walk through a certain pathway in that, that familiar place. So, you know, one of the words is goat and you get to your front door and there's a goat bang at you at the front door. And so you just, you walk through your house and you have certain triggers and it makes it easier to remember those 12 to 24 words. Um, and I've done that in the past and surprisingly it actually works well because you create a story for yourself in your mind and, um, and it makes it very difficult to to forget those words. So uh, Moonwalking with Einstein is the book. It is not at all about Bitcoin, but it definitely pertains to it now. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four-day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. I, I agree. And I think that's really good. And to your point, I mean, right now, you know, I think uh, we talk about, you know, cold card or the uh, foundation passport or ledger or treasure or all these devices you know, right now, if someone were to see this, they think it's like a rinky weird calculator, or they think it's like a USB stick if it's a ledger yeah. or treasure. Uh, but going forward, those things, if it has truly global adoption, which we believe it will, you know, these devices become recognizable. And you think in terms of, you know, it may not be a gold, gold brick or a gold bar, but, you know, if you're trying to cross the border and you get stopped by some foreign regime invading your country, you know, they're like, oh, what's this? They know what it is. And then they pocket the device. Uh, you know, they might have a hard time getting into it, but um, that's another thing, but still confiscating the devices that you use. So mm -hmm. I definitely think, you know, you get to the point where the only way to stop it is to have it in your mind and uh, you hope that they don't try and torture you to get it out of you. Uh, yeah. But I guess we'll have to be trained like uh, KGB spies or, you know, by the Navy SEALs for, to reduce, uh, to resist tactics such as torture and stuff like that, future Bitcoiners. Uh, yeah. I hope that's not the case. The, the world that we build is better than that. But, you know, it, it's a scary place for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, and, and again, to your point that, you know, $5 wrench attack is always a, uh, a possibility, even, even outside of the, the whole nation state, you know, times of war kind of scenario. And so, you know, making yourself resistant to $5 wrench attacks, perhaps with even something simple as passphrases, right? Passphrases and decoy accounts um, have a have a. Um, I, I just did a a, a tutorial on uh, seed XOR with with cold card, so you can effectively take your seed phrase and split it in two. So it's two separate seed phrases. Each one of those functions as a regular wallet as well. So you could put decoy amounts in those, but when you combine them through seed XOR, they become a singular separate wallet. 
And you can also put a passphrase on top of that. So even if somebody was privy to what that was and went to look, then they wouldn't be uh, familiar. But even just putting a, a single passphrase on a regular seed in instances like this, it, it, it becomes that, that plausible deniability piece that, that can help people that maybe somebody is trying to cross a border with a hardware device. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, there, there's definitely tools available to people to, to prevent those types of things from happening, or at least like, you know, you have your sacrificial lamb that you offer up, but. Uh... Hugh, do you have anything to add there? Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate all of the, the insight on that. I was trying to take notes on a couple of things that I could just personally do better. Um, I know that my, my personal self-storage habits aren't necessarily the best. I was teasing everyone that I, before heading down to Mexico, was frantically trying to take all of the Bitcoin on my phone and put it onto my hard drive wallet because I don't want to do that. Um, but I'm, I'm a little curious because I'll just say it like this. I smoke way too much weed to like trust myself to actually remember my 24 word phrase in a row. Like that's just, that's the simple fact. Um, I have the the card stock scattered actually around the country. I have it in a couple of safes as well as in a couple of trusted people's possessions. And I've been going back and forth on like buying a metal card, but I'm kind of curious of, of your thoughts on just like the idea of, or dealing with losing or not being able to access your key versus just losing your actual Bitcoin. Like what to you is a worst case scenario? I, I mean, yeah, a lot, a lot of people, I don't think they've, they've really thought through their, their backup and their, their, their process for key storage as thoroughly as they should. Um, because again, things can turn on a dime as, as we've seen. And so I would say people that are, are, are wondering, you know, how to, how to tackle this kind of thing. Imagine if somebody kicked in your door right now and and whoever it may be, maybe you're living in a country where they're, they're going to kick in your door and they're going to steal all your shit. And they're going to demand um, all your keys and everything. How prepared are you for that? You know, are they going to get everything? Is, is all of it going to be gone? If the answer is yes, if somebody could like hit you with a wrench for, for a few minutes and you actually could give them all of your Bitcoin, you should probably be in a better position than that. Uh, things like, again, simplistically, if you don't have, uh, you know, a lot of funds to be buying multiple devices and so on and so forth, add a passphrase to whatever hardware wallet you have, and then put a, a, a small portion of your Bitcoin outside of the passphrase, just in the default wallet. There, you've got some plausible deniability. And so in that worst case scenario, a better option would probably be a geographically dispersed multi-sig. And so if you don't trust yourself a, um, a lot, then maybe you're going with something like Unchained Capital or, or CASA. And in that instance, <clears throat> I, I think it's just a, a personal preference, but um, in having tried both, you know, Unchained, I, I like not having to have like a specific CASA app um, involved, but again, that can be up to the individual. But regardless, if you have a, a geographically dispersed multi-sig, then there's a lot of fault tolerance there, right? You can lose a lot of shit and still be okay. So, so let's say you had something at Unchained because you're like, holy shit, I, I, I need a, a, a something idiot proof so I could really screw up. But something like an Unchained vault How's that play out? Well, you've got two devices, whatever those may be, cold card, ledger, treasure, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. But you've got two hardware devices and you've got a backup of each. You, you could store those two devices in different locations and then you could store those two backups in totally different locations than that. And at that point, Unchained has one key. You do give up with them, they do know how much money you have in the vault. So there's a privacy trade-off there. So keep that in mind. But um, just in terms of how much you could massively screw up, well, you could lose 75% of the things 
that you're supposed to be keeping track of and still be okay, right? If you have either device or either backup, you could then go to Unchained and be like, yo, I literally lost almost everything, but I have one, one key left. I can sign. Can you sign the other half of this transaction? And you're still fine. So you can make it really robust and fault tolerant and have like a responsible third party if you see fit, or you can set up your own multi-sig um, and, and make it pretty fault tolerant as well. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that, I know I went on a bit of a rant there, but um, there, there's a lot of options for that. But in the end, if somebody could kick in your door and take all your Bitcoin, you're probably not secure enough. I would agree for sure. And I think it, it's funny too, because you're trying to always, you're trying to $5 wrench attack yourself. Like I even think of it like this, you know, some people that are like, oh, I'm only going to keep it to my memory. I think I've heard rumors that the Winklevoss have done that or whatever, maybe they're twins. So they have twin telepathy so they can know what the yeah. other half of the passphrase is. But the issue then becomes like very real incident. You can get hit by a car and you have brain damage and then you're, you're trying to give it to your heirs or your family or whatever. And they don't know the passphrase that you had in your mind that you never yeah. wrote down. Or, yeah. you know, all of a sudden you develop Alzheimer's, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to think multi-generational or, or long, low time preference, you know, long time horizon, you know, all of a sudden you develop a, a memory loss condition. And then, you know, you don't remember what the passphrase is one of the first things to go. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a benefit to being robust. I think there's even a benefit to storing in multiple different wallets. I, when I first yes. came into this space, I was like, I'm going to have one device. I'm going to have all of it. I'm just going to bury it in the backyard and hide it somewhere really good. And no one will know. Yeah. But then it's like, oh, well, if someone like holds a gun to my head and says, you have to get it, I'm like, all right, maybe, you know, is this bullet worth it? And then no one knows where it is. So, you know, if you have it in different places, if they get a piece of your, your stash or a part of it, you know, yeah. that's not all of it. So that's always a good compromise. Yeah, exactly. Having, having some degree of, again, it's, it's not a catastrophic failure if, if some of it is, is, uh, is lost at least some of it is available. So you can have degrees of that, right? You can have the a hardware wallet at home that has some, you can have maybe a multi-sig, maybe something else, and maybe a passphrase. But if it's if it's kind of spread in, in multiple places, if you have the resources and the funds to do that, um, then, then, you know, make yourself uh, uh, resilient and, and um, resilient to uh, various- And I think of it- even just like tying back to the legacy financial system, you think of it like, what are banks insured to? I know in the United States, they don't own Canada, but they're insured up to 250,000. Maybe they bumped it up to 500,000. When you think of all of, when you think of all the billionaires out there, you know, they don't just have one house, one business, whatever. Yeah. Like they have multiple properties of real estate. That's kind of like different assets they have. You know, maybe if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you have like your stocks, but you know, Tesla does a lot more than they're trying to sell batteries. They're trying to sell cars. They're like in ge different geographical locations. So think of it like you're trying to build a, a business. You know, a billionaire is not going to stick a billion dollars in, you know, however many banks a billion splits up by, by 500,000. You know, that just doesn't make sense. They put it into different assets and you can look at assets in terms of different hardware wallets, different custody setups, different multi-sigs, you know, pairing with Casa and Unchained if you think that's a, a better setup. But that's just kind of the way I build, you know, the future of, of finance from a Bitcoiner's perspective. Yeah. I got a question for the two of you because something you said, Chris, kind of triggered a weird thought in my mind. But like the whole idea that like, I think all three of us are on the same page that we'll never spend our Bitcoin. If I need to, I'll, I will take some sort of a, a loan against it in the same way that Elon takes loans against his Tesla shares or uh, Sailor kind of explained the way the New York elites used to take it against their real estate. In a very hyper-secured future where I can't see how many Bitcoin you have, nor you, you would be able to see how many I have, what's to stop anyone from getting some sort of a loan from whatever that centralized monetary policy is in their locale to say, hey, I want a loan against five Bitcoin that's buried in, the, in my backyard when in reality it's 0.5 Bitcoin or it's 0.1 Bitcoin, like what's to stop that? And how do we prevent that? I mean, you could, I'd imagine you did just have to demand some sort of a, a signature. Right. But, but typically like if you're, if you're operating up collateral from what I've seen so far, it, it kind of depends on, on how you're doing it. Like right now, 
you know, some of the the bigger names out there require you to deposit the collateral in order to get the loan. Again, like I I don't think anybody's going to offer a loan if you just point to a UTXO and say that's mine. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be lending you shit. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to find Sailor's UTXO. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you see mean, this you giant one Satoshi's over here? wallet uh, you know, that I say that I own. <laughs> yeah, but, but I I, I want to push back a little bit on this because this idea that okay, fine, we will have to in some degree publicize it to these entities while at the same time having to focus on security. It's almost like we're diverging this path. Like in my head, it almost feels like there are going to be some Bitcoin that will be publicized for use cases such as being used to purchase things for loans, whatever it may be. And then there are others that are just going to be held sort of for security purpose and safekeeping. And do in doing that, does that create almost a fork, if you will, or a false fork where, hey, 60% of the supply is tucked away and hidden, whereas 40% is circulating. And is that necessarily a good thing or a bad thing for Bitcoin? Yeah, I guess I'll expand on that, Q. I think, you know, in the future, if you're working with best privacy practices, if you, perfect example, like let's just say you and I are doing a deal. I'm buying $100 worth of Bitcoin from you or whatever, $100 object. And, you know, when I'm giving you the $100 in cash, you know, because I'm handing it to you that I have $100, but I could have a million dollars in the bank that you don't know about. So I think there's going to be ways, whether you want a loan for $100, $1,000, whatever the amount be, you know, that this is where we talk about having different accounts, different multi-signature, different lightning wallets, different hardware wallets, whatever it may be, just because we're operating off one uh, if we see it on chain, you know, you're assuming it's base layer on chain, you can see that Bitcoin and, you know, you kind of know, or maybe we're operating on li lightning and you could just see the channel that you're connected to because I told you what it is. But in the future, you don't know um, which, like if you break up your Bitcoin into multiple devices, you don't know that I own all these devices or all these UTXOs. You're just dealing in the paradigm, like uh, the parameters of, of what you see basically and what we're trying to negotiate. Also, uh, right now, we're, it sounds like we're kind of thinking in the context of the regular legacy KYC world. But, but like when you think about it, if, if you have physical collateral in terms of like actual Bitcoin and you want a loan against that Bitcoin, you could put that into some sort of a multi-sig escrow and again without uh like if if there's digital dollars in in whatever form those may take you don't need identity the the collateral is there the collateral is the thing that makes the loan viable so why do you need to know somebody's name if the collateral is going to sit in that escrow until the loan is paid back so um in terms of like privacy there who the hell cares who it is if, if the bitcoin's sitting in escrow and there's some sort of mechanism where you know if you don't pay back then the collateral goes to the the loaner then doesn't matter who you are i'm gonna ask something because i'm gonna keep diving down this rabbit hole with you if you'll entertain it um and i'm definitely thinking of things through the lens of the current systems we have in place but for example bitmex getting absolutely grilled on their whole uh um potentially having money laundered through their system because they don't know necessarily who is who is coming through their system putting money in withdrawing it etc does that not essentially prevent a system from being created out of that fear that hardcore bitcoiner i do not buy into the fub that oh like only criminals use bitcoin i'm just trying to present the other side of this argument so don't get mad at me when i say certain things right now but like, if it turns into that and all of a sudden we don't actually know who is depositing this money, I feel like that argument of, hey, criminals are using Bitcoin, they're flocking to Bitcoin right now because no one needs to know who they are and they can just clean their money or they can quickly grab cash, whether it be dollars or whatever other fiat currency they want. Does that not set us back, I think? Or I think it sets us back. Do you not agree with that? I, I mean... It's, it's going to, we already see people pointing to any instance of using Bitcoin for something they don't like as, oh, this is horrible. We need to get rid of it. Oh, this is, this is, 
using almost as much as Christmas lights. This is terrible. And let's shut it down. So, you know, we see that those instances everywhere. In the end, it's it's uh, is it a temporary setback where where people say, you know, who bad people are using this? Sure. I mean, we've seen a lot of that through the past. That was like the first major spotlight on Bitcoin was bad people are using this. They're getting drugs and stuff. In the end, it'll be, is it useful to the two consenting adults that wish to uh, get a loan or extend a loan? Um, is it useful to the individual that's, you know, es- escaping a, a country um, with their assets intact? Um it, does it set us back in the the public image based on what MSNBC and CNN are, are going to peddle to us? Sure. Do we care in the long run? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, I don't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like in the end, it's 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 uh, as as the the topic came up initially, it's a tool that is equal access to everybody on the planet, um, anybody with an inter- internet connection. So lots of people that maybe don't have a use case for it themselves may find it to be less than ideal and may want to ban it and may want to do all kinds of things, but it will still continue to exist through all of that. Um, and eventually everybody will have a use for it in some way, shape or form, whether they know that they're using it or not. They, it may just be that they're sending dollars to euros, uh, so you know, across the pond, and then you go, you just use Bitcoin for that. Do you know that? And oh, I guess I do have a use case for it. <laughs> so you know, I I think that's where we're headed. And eventually, when people see, oh, I am using it, I didn't even know. You know, like people using a a, a telephone today are using the internet. When previously they may have, you know, the, the when when uh, telephone companies started utilizing the internet and using that infrastructure for their lines, people who previously didn't see the point in the internet all of a sudden were using it without being privy to it. So it is what it is. Yeah, definitely. And I, I always make this joke, like saying about like Bitcoin nodes, like I see a Bitcoin node as basically like a modem or a router for uh yeah i see a bitcoin node uh as a modem or a router for Mm -hmm. basically like what in layman's terms and kind of what you were saying before too about like people using it you know we see this use case that in ukraine right now um they're using it to flee the country while russians are using it as their currency is collapsing so it's kind of a, a mixed use case that you know maybe they don't like each other maybe they do maybe they have family members that are russian they're just kind of the innocent bystanders that are being hurt by all of this but yeah. um, just kind of showing Bitcoins for everyone and Bitcoins for enemies, you know, it has different use cases. While some people were calling for Russia not only to be cut off the SWIFT system, but to be removed from crypto exchanges, uh, such as Kraken or Binance or whatever. Uh, and I know the leaders of those countries are kind of in a very difficult spot, or uh, sorry, not of those countries, of the exchanges are in yeah. a v- very difficult spot. I know uh, even we talked about it yesterday, Q&I, uh, Jesse Powell of Kraken, the CEO, was saying that he was not going to shut off the the Russians' bank accounts uh, or or their uh, basically accounts on the exchange, and because uh, he basically said it's like a slippery sto- slope if you start doing this. And he even made a, a little small dig at the U.S. He's like, you know, because if if we should be doing uh, turning off bank accounts of people that are unjust or um, uh, yeah, cause creating global, war, yeah. yeah, exactly for creating war, then we should shut off the U.S. bank accounts, and that's not a very viable business model. Is kind of what he concluded, like yeah. tongue in cheek answer. Uh, and and Q and I really like that response. Q, do you have anything to add to the Ukraine Russia uh, part I, of this? I actually I want to add a little bit to that conversation that, and give Ben an op- opportunity to comment if I can finish my words. You know, something that I've been thinking about a lot since since we had that discussion yesterday, quite frankly, is there seems to be this, uh, I'm just going to be very blunt, a lot of hypocrisy from the Bitcoin community right now. Whether or not you agree with what is going on to prevent people from accessing their funds and money that they worked and spent time to earn, I thought we were all on the same page that that's unacceptable behavior. 
I thought we were all on the same page that when Canada did that to the truckers through GoFundMe and then started attacking bank accounts, that was financial terrorism. And then here we are because someone else is doing something that we don't agree with. We're trying to kick them off the network. I personally, as it sat with me more and more, it's kind of upset me. Um, and I think Jesse's answer is great, but I want to take it a step further where just because they don't, we don't agree with them, just because they're doing something that we don't value or agree with does not mean we take away their money. That's just my two cents on it, but I don't know if I'm taking it a step too far and I'd love your two thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's totally fair to, I, again, like back to kind of circling back to the beginning of that conversation. It's a tool. Everyone can use it. The whole point is removing the ability of anyone to exert any control over the actual base layer network of value. And so, you know, with that is going to come bad people using it, good people using it, all kinds of people using it, everybody in between um, and who defines good or bad. Um, but in the end, it's, it's simply a tool. And in my opinion, it's, it's far greater to have all of the, the small individuals be able to have absolute control and, and this extreme form of private ownership as opposed to giving control to a government, whether we think that government is good or not. Um, because when you give that kind of control, not only do you have to trust that the current regime is acting altruistically, but you also have to trust that every government thereafter will also act altruistically. And we know that that will never ever be the case. There's always going to be some shady thing that happens in the background. There's always going to be some, some person that has uh, misaligned incentives. And there's always going to be that perversion that happens where somebody wants to siphon off wealth somewhere. Somebody wants to cut off a, a, a protest that they disagree with. Somebody wants to do something um, and not give everybody else a fair shake. And so, um, you know, I, I much prefer much like um, things have developed with the internet where in the end, everybody can use it. I know obviously there's, there's uh, hubs and, and uh, social media platforms that may uh, prevent certain things, but at the same point, um, everybody can still use the internet. And so uh, I, I think it's important that we get to that place with money as well. And um Money is is apolitical, as I said before, um, and I think it should just merely be a tool. And if somebody does something that's illegal or if somebody does something that's awful, then that should be addressed outside of the context of of the global value network. You hit the nail on the head and perfect example. I mean, it's a tool. That's what we kind of keep saying, you know. If someone takes a hammer and they build a house, you know, we don't have a problem with that. But if they take it and they harm someone with it, that's a different story. If someone takes a baseball bat and they play a game of baseball, we're cool with that. But if they, you know, attack someone with that, that's a different story. You know, it can go with guns. It can go with money. It's these are all just tools. And, you know, the way that you use the tool is the way that you judge the person or whatever the situation, you know, it's uh, saying like, oh, to ban all guns or whatever it may be. And then then you run into authoritarian governments or, you know, if someone's using a gun to hunt to provide for their family. That's a lot different story than someone using it to harm other people or masses of people. Uh, it's all very nuanced and it's all case by case. You know, I know a lot of times Bitcoiners, we really believe in property rights and uh, bodily autonomy, but at the end of the day, we do believe in, in laws. You know, we believe in Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's law or protocol, um, you know, and then there's kind of property laws built on top of that. Um, how people should operate in their day-to-day -day life. You know, I think we'd all agree whether the, if there's a law or not, me going out and harming another human being just by evolution in nature, we'd say, okay, that's, you know, that's not acceptable. You know, you can't do that. Maybe back in the eight days of a caveman, you, you beat up another guy and you take whatever he has in order to assert your dominance, but we've kind of evolved as a society and uh, we're seeing this through the uh, evolution of money as well. So you're telling me the evolution of humanity when uh, centralized governments beat us up and take all of our hard-earned money and taxes and whatnot, that this is socially acceptable? No, I, I would disagree with you there, Q. <laughs> I guess anything else you have to add or expand on, Q? No, I, I cut I cut Ben off, but I just wanted to tease you a little bit because 
my first thought was, yes, we have, we have grown as a society. However, I don't think every single intention is tried and true. I think mm. the human instinct, unfortunately, is greed. And rather than punish instinct, I think we need to lean into it. Um, and one of my first conversations on this show with Eric Yates, uh, his book, The Seventh Property, incredible book. We had a book club segment. Everyone needs to check this book out. Uh, but he talks a lot about the fact that like humanity and humans are we are instinctively greedy. So rather than create systems that prevent the greed from being a benefit to the system, let's lean into that and design a system that allows for greediness to actually prosper, not in the sense of individual greed, but communal greed helping to grow. I don't think I explained that very well, but Eric, if you're out there listening, come back on. <laughs> yeah. It's it, you're, a lot of what you guys are saying is reminding me of, um, uh, a lot of the premise in and behind um, the uh, the sovereign individual, where they talk about um, the world uh, and and how it works, um, being a a product of the monopoly on violence, and Bitcoin kind of throws a wrench into those cogs, right? It 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 diminishes the effect of the monopoly on violence, right? Um, to an extent, obviously, again, like we can still see that individuals can still be coerced into giving up keys and so on and so forth. But um, in the end, like if, if, if you have a robust, robust setup, it can still be um, prevented from, from being removed, being taken, especially on a, a nation state level, that's a possibility. So, yeah, this monopoly on violence is gradually being reduced. And it also plays into a little bit, you know, I don't, I don't agree with every concept, but um, a, a little bit about uh, what Jason P. Lowry talks about in terms of we're, we're moving from kind of this, this uh, global show of force kinetically to, uh, to uh, exuding that through energy and Bitcoin being a network. Uh, that is supported by energy. And, and I see a little bit of that um, is his war comparisons. I, I don't always fully agree with, but I do see some kind of something there. There's some sort of string that can be tugged on um, in this, this move away from uh, kinetic warfare, physical warfare, or at least diminishing that aspect of it because the cost could be too great uh, in terms of not being able to just create value out of nothing anymore. Yeah, and I'll definitely expand on that as well, because, you know, instead of going to war with the country, if you could sigh off them or, you know, control their social media or see what they see, uh, you know, and kind of, I don't want to get the tinfoil hat out, but like, if you could control that, that's definitely more valuable and it causes less loss of life to your own citizens and your own people while also controlling the narrative and controlling what's going on around the world. Um, I think Bitcoin mining is a big part of that as well. You're using, you're expending your energy and resources and you're trying to be, to compete, to be the most efficient, to control the global money supply. You know, the U.S. hegemony, we've kind of benefited uh, of being, you know, the, the global reserve currency, you know, there's debates of whether it's 100 years, whether it's 50 years, whether it's, you know, right after World War II. Uh, there's many debates on that. But I think Nolan was saying in one of the segments of the breakup, he says, if you have to say you're famous, you're not famous. And he was kind of saying that the U.S. is looking at like that right now. It's saying, you know, we're, we're the global reserve currency. It's like, well, are you or are you not? Like, you sound a little scared when you're saying that, you know, it's either you are used or you aren't. And um, going on that point, like, Basically, with Bitcoin, you're competing to have the most amount of hash rate, which in turn is you being able to generate the most amount of wealth in, via Bitcoin that's rewarded by doing so. So in a, a fully global and decentralized network, that is the, the miners, or at least we hope so, as it expands and grows, that all the countries are competing to move the, the, the global dominance around the world. And it can change in an instant. You know, you're building more miners and you start plugging them in or, you know, a one country like China bans it and then it moves to the US and that pushes, it swings, you know, the balance of power and, and global reserve status to more of the United States. Uh, obviously us as a nation state, and I, I'm saying, I guess, North America in general to include Ben, but, um, yeah, you're, you're kind of fighting for the, the hash rate in order to be the global reserve status, basically. I, I love this idea, too, because um, let's let's 
dive into a world where, you know, Bitcoin is the world reserve and everybody's competing for that share of global hash rate. If you do become the most dominant hash on the planet, then effectively your anybody that is your enemy in, in utilizing, and let's say after the block reward is gone and the whole network is simply subsidized by on-chain fees and, and settlement transactions, so on and so forth, all of a sudden your enemies are now paying you to use the global network for value. And so it becomes this, this ebb and flow, this, this push and pull where, where if you want to be the one that's getting paid, you, you want to be the largest global hash. And so that game theory playing out of, of getting, like imagine in the context of what's happening right now, if that's how this was playing out instead, where the U.S., um, and Russia are, are competing to be the top global hash or, and China in there and, you know, all, you know, West, Western kind of like Europe, all that. Everybody's competing to be that top global hash so that their, their enemies or, or their, you know, the, the, their opposition are effectively paying them to use the, our, our global network of value. That's, that's, that's pretty interesting to see uh it would be pretty interesting to see exactly how that that game theory plays out and and what that means for policy and because it's you know does does somebody then try to skirt the network effects of bitcoin i think it would be pretty difficult at that point and so and and we kind of <laughs> there's so much going on right now because you know russia is talking about one world currency um is this is this the opportunity where we see maybe Western nations start to gravitate towards decentralized options, you know, to maybe peak at Bitcoin? I don't know if, if many politicians are there yet, but I could see that maybe eventually playing out if, if we see this alternative currency come out of Russia and uh, the only, you know, either we see a, a equally centralized option come out of the US and compete for a while, or we see eventually one side or the other capitulate to Bitcoin as a better network effect. So we'll, we'll see. I think one of the things that, that spurred in my mind during this, and we've talked about sort of the potentials of a hash war and what that looks like, but I think a secondary layer to this, and I'm curious your thoughts, not just controlling the hash rate, but controlling the manufacturing of the components of mining rigs, because like so much semiconductor manufacturing comes out of Taiwan. China goes and takes Taiwan right now. We're not getting new ASICs for quite some time. All the other components that go into it, whether it's also just the energy capture, energy release, all of these factors and control of it, it almost seems as though if one country can really master and get a hold of it all, there's no telling how high they can actually push their own country's hash rate and hash capabilities. But at the same time, if it is so decentralized in a way where there are eight different countries that all manufacture an equal amount or within two to 5% of the total semiconductor uh, semiconductors that are introduced into the entire world, that I think helps to decentralize this. But I don't, I don't see how we get to that scenario when we're already struggling with trying to get to a scenario where just not Taiwan is producing or just not Taiwan and China are producing all of our stuff. We've seen um, Blockstream make some moves there, right? Like they're, they're looking mm -hmm. into the uh, fabrication of that. Um, I, I think TSMC is coming to Arizona. I, I, I do want to point that out. And yes, I own shares of that. So I have to legally say that. <laughs> but I mean, we, we are starting to see, I think perhaps we start to see what we saw with um, global hash over the last couple of years, right? In, in terms of chip fab fabrication, right? We've seen a continual decentralization of where globally the hash rate is located in no small part due to China banning it last summer, which was like the biggest bungle of, of geopolitical bungle of all time, in my opinion, I think will be looked at one of those uh, eventually. But, you know, I think chip fabrication it's becoming very clear that this needs to be 
you know, at least not just in a single locale uh, or a couple locales. It needs to be in more places. And, and we're seeing the beginnings of that. Um, my hope is that, you know, we're looking at this five years, 10 years from now saying, oh, man, look at all look at all the uh, all the options that we have for for chip fabrication. I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, Ben, uh, we've had a great time talking to you. I think we got to start wrapping up here. Uh, Q, is there anything else you want to ask or add? Uh, I just want to ask you because I know you will be there and I believe you were there last year as well at the conference, but what are you most excited for at Bitcoin 22 other than yourself speaking on stage? <laughs> I'm, I'm more nervous about that, but uh, I'm just excited to see everybody. Like when you, it's, it's awesome interacting with Bitcoiners online, but it's really awesome interacting with Bitcoiners in person. Like it's, it's like a giant family reunion. Last year was incredible. Just, I couldn't walk five feet without seeing somebody that I had interacted with online or, or had been talking to forever and to finally actually be able to, you know, give that person a handshake or a hug or whatever, and just sit down and shoot the shit and, and talk Bitcoin in person. Like it's the feeling is, is electric. And so I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm going to try and catch as many, talks as I can, but just, just being in the presence of, of a lot of people that I, I respect and that I, you know, feel this bond with and with, you know, like being around people of like values um, can often be uh, an event that is, is few and far between uh, with Bitcoiners. Uh, you don't get those opportunities quite as often unless you're at a, re at regular meetups. Um, so I just, I can't wait to see everybody. And, um, yeah, if anybody sees me there, come say hi, because I'm very excited to meet every Bitcoiner that I, I get to come across. Yeah, Ben, thanks so much for coming on. It was a pleasure having you here. Uh, hopefully I, I, we could go on and do this for hours. Hopefully we can do that at Bitcoin 2022. Uh, obviously you can use code YTMAG for 10% off your conference tickets Excited to see you guys all there in Miami Beach from April 6th to the 9th. Uh, ben, once again, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Yep, peace out. Yep.